I, as Pastor said, you, if you don't know who I am, it's probably because you don't call me Mr. Donald. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of like Dr. Doolittle, you know, if you remember Rex Harrison. He could only talk to animals, didn't do very well with his, his human patients. So, um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not really good at talking with adults. And I always have a PowerPoint here so you don't notice that I'm reading from my sermon. Um, but our scripture this morning is in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 18. I use the New King James Version, so it can be a little different if you're reading in the Pew Bible. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And one last um, attempt at humor. Good thing I didn't talk with the worship team ahead of time and call this saying thanks 10,000 ways to Sunday. When Pastor Eric asked me if I'd be willing to preach today, and I realized it was the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I knew I wanted to share from 1 Thessalonians 5. Four decades ago, John MacArthur wrote a little booklet called Found, God's Will, in which he examined the six S's of God's will. The booklet's cover had newsprint from the classified section, like the lost and found, an acknowledgement that many people view God's will as hidden and hard to find. But as we'll see, it's very, he is very clear about it. Before looking at that clarity, I'd like to introduce you to two Greek word families that are associated with the idea of God's will, namely bulamai and bule, and thelo and thelema. I'm terrible at pronunciations, but I really enjoy uh, languages, so you just put up with it. <laughs> Both word families are used together in the following passage. In Matthew 1, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting, Thelo, to make her a public example, was minded, Bulamai, to put her away secretly. Mark 5, Pilate answered them saying, do you want, Thelo, me to release the king of the Jews. So Pilate, wanting Bulamai to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. In Luke 22, Jesus was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, Bulamai, take this cup away from me, nevertheless, my, not my will, Thelema, but yours wills be done. In Matthew 1, even though Joseph felt betrayed by Mary, he could not find pleasure, Thelo, in having her stoned, according to Deuteronomy 21. Therefore, he decided, Bulamai, to give her a bill of divorce, according to Deuteronomy 24. 
In Mark 15, Pilate wanted to know if it would please Thelo, the crowd, for him to release the king of the Jews. And although it did not please him to do so, Pilate made a decision, Bulamai, to have Jesus crucified to please the, the crowd. And in Luke 22, as he prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not want to do what would bring him pleasure, Thelema, but rather what the Father had decided, Bulamai, must occur. Now there is a fourth passage, namely Ephesians 1.11, where Paul used, describes God as the one who works all things according to the counsel, the bule, of his will, Thelema. Based on the observations in these other passages, God is working out all things according to a determined plan, a bule, which is rooted in what pleases him, Thelema. God's plan ultimately brings him pleasure when the entire plan has been carried out, but that does not mean that everything that that everything occurs along the way pleases God. Although he desires his desires to Lema will ultimately be fulfilled, he may temporarily lay them aside to fulfill his plan, his bule. For instance, God is not pleased by fornication, as we'll see in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not part of his thelema. But every baby born out of wedlock is part of his plan, bule, for he is the one who, who weaves the child in his or her mother's womb and ordains the number of days, Psalm 139. We cannot direct our lives according to his plan, which is for the most part hidden, but we can live according to his desires as expressed in scripture. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think Bulek corresponds to the secret things that belong to Yahweh our God, or what we might call the sovereign will of God. And the Thelema corresponds to the things which are revealed, that belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of, of the law, or what we might call the revealed will of God. In all the verses that MacArthur uses to discuss the six S's of God's will, the thelo or thelema word family is utilized. So we're speaking of things that please God and that he has revealed to us. First, saved. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wills, thelo, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy 2. Two, spirit-filled. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand the will, the thelema of the Lord, what the, of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. Third, sanctified. For this is the will, the thelema of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 1 Thessalonians 4. Fourth, submitted. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to his governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will, the thelema of God, that by doing good you may put silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Peter 2. Fifth, 
suffer for righteousness sake. For who is he who would har- will harm you if you, you become followers for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, they may revile, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will, the thelema of God, to suffer doing good than for doing evil, First Peter 3. And then finally, saying thanks. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will, the thelema of God in Christ Jesus for you, First Thessalonians 5. God's will revealed for us is that you be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submitted, suffering for righteousness' sake, and saying thanks. This morning, I'd like to focus on that last one, saying thanks. Although John MacArthur based saying thanks on 1 Thessalonians 5.18, I believe Paul's phrase, this is the thelema of God in Christ Jesus for you, refers to the entire passage that we read at the beginning, verses 12 to 18. In the opening lyrics of Andre Crouch's My Tribute, he sings, How can I say thanks for all the things you've done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you gave to prove your love for me. In our passage this morning, Paul gives us seven ways to thank God for all that he has done for us. I've done some linguistic gymnastics to get them all to begin with P. (laughs) You'll have to note the first footnote on the next slide, particularly. Our text begins, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Verses 12 and 13a. Paul gives a twofold command. Recognize and, pers- and esteem, which for alliteration's sake I have as be perceptive and be appreciative. I know it's not a word. <laughs> the objects of this perception and appreciation are described as laboring, kapiao, ruling, proestemi, admonishing, noiteo, and working, ergo. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul mentions the labor or the kapiao of love and the work, the ergo of, of faith associated with the entire assembly. Further, in this passage that we're studying, we'll see that he called all of us to admonishing or anoitheo. So there's application in what I'm about to share for all those who, who, who uh, serve God here. However, I'd like especially to refer to the team that God brought here 14 years ago and who are down in God's backyard this morning, Eric and Nicole. As I pointed out, Paul is referring particularly to those who rule over us. The apostle uses that same word in in 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule, proestemi, well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, kapiao, in the word and doctrine. I don't think there is any question that Pastor Eric labors in the word and doctrine. It should be easily perceived by anyone who listens to his sermons and Bible studies. 
So how are we to show our appreciation? Before I make some scriptural recommendations, I'd like to point as to how Paul describes this appreciation. He uses an amazing phrase, Hooper ek perisu, a double-strengthened form of a word that already means abundantly. It's used only one other time, and that's in Ephesians 3.20, where God's ability to answer prayer is, is, is described. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, Hooper ek perisu, all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. God is able to do all that we ask or think. God is able to do above all that we ask or think. God can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's the phrase that Paul is using to describe our appreciation for our elders. So how do we show that exceedingly abundantly above appreciation? Back in 1 Timothy 5, Paul indicates that we should, should be, they should be counted worthy of double honor, Timae. Earlier in the chapter, the apostle uses the word, verb form of that word when he says, honor, Timao, widows, who are really widows. The passage goes on to speak about supplying the physical needs of widows who are without children or grandchildren and who have lived faithful lives. Likewise, we should provide for the physical needs of our elders who rule well, laboring in God's word. The author of Hebrews writes, Remember those who lead you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Obey those who lead you and be submissive, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do so with joy and not grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Do you want to thank God? Be perceptive of those he's placed in your life to teach you his word and be appreciative by providing for their physical needs, following their faith, submitting to their authority, and allowing them to serve God and watch over your souls with joy and not grief. The second thing that Paul writes is be at peace among yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5:13b. The Greek word translated be at peace, irenio, it's used by Jesus in Mark 9. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you salt it? Have peace in yourselves and have peace, irenio, with one another. What is Jesus referring to when he says, salted with fire? He's likely referencing Leviticus 2.13. Every offering of your grain offering, you shall salt with salt. You shall not offer, allow the salt of, your, of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. Unlike the other four kinds of offerings in Leviticus, the early chapters of Leviticus, the grain offering did not involve a sacrificial animal. It had fine flour, oil, frankincense, and the salt of the covenant of your God. What covenant is it talking about? To be honest, I'm not sure. God made two covenants of salt. One with Aaron and his descendants, which you can read about in Numbers 18. And one with David and his descendants, which he, with the kings, therefore, in Second Chronicles 13. However, we, these instructions came 
the, the, this, these instructions are, these came after the instructions in Leviticus 2. I would note that, that the, the fine flour, the oil, and the frankincense all burned up in the fire, but not the salt. So my, my best, I hate saying the word guess, but my best, because everybody I read had a different opinion, but my best opinion that the salt points to the permanence of Jesus' royal priesthood. When you hear Jesus talking about salt, you're probably thinking of the, of the passage, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you with all, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, with what shall it be salted? Matthew 5. I included Matthew 5, 9 to 12 because it connects peace, fire, and salt. The fire is the persecution and the false accusations resulting from being a disciple of Jesus. The salting occurs when our reaction is the same as Jesus. To that fire, namely rejoicing and being exceedingly glad because our reward is not here but in heaven. As I indicated, the salt possibly points to the permanence of Jesus' royal priesthood because there was this covenant of salt with Aaron and with David. His royal priesthood brings reconciliation or, or peace between God and men. The Apostle Peter writes of us. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2. So when we are reviled, instead of reviling, we are to de declare the praises of God who called us out of darkness to our revilers who are still in it. We are not responsible for other people's actions, but we are responsible for our reactions. Paul states, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably, irenuo, with all men. Romans 12. And he gives us a clue on how to do this in Romans 4, I mean, uh, Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, salted with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Do you want to thank God? Be peaceable by speaking to all men, those who are part of the royal priesthood and those who are still in darkness, in a way that proclaims the praises of our great God, being the salt that works for reconciliation. The third thing that Paul writes is warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. The overarching command there is be patient, which is observed in warning the weak and comforting the faint-hearted and upholding the weak. The Greek word translated patient is a great one, macro through meo, which based on its two roots means long anger or in biblical terms, slow to anger. The Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses it in Exodus 34, where God has his de self-declaration to Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, macro thumeo, and abounding in goodness and truth. 
There the Hebrew is arak af, which means long nose. Not like Pinocchio's, but rather that it takes a long time for God's nostrils to flare in anger. So let's look at the three, the, the three examples that Paul asks us in, in patience. The unruly. The Greek translated unruly, octoctos, speaks of a soldier who's out of, out of um, ranks. He refuses to, to obey those placed over him. Paul uses it in 2 Thessalonians 3. We command you that you withdraw from every brother who walks dis- disorderly, octoctos, and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. We commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear there there are those who walk among you in a disorderly, atoctos manner, not working at all, but being busybodies. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The word translated admonish here in 2 Thessalonians 3 is the same word Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 5 regarding warning the unruly. Noitheo. J. Adams wrote a book about neuthetic counseling, in which he says about this word, it has within it three elements, concern, confrontation, and change. Noitheic counseling involves face-to-face confrontation from one person to another out of a loving concern in order to bring about the change that God wants to bring in the person's life. The faint-hearted. The Greek word translated faint-hearted, oligopsukos, literally means small-souled. The word translated comfort, paramutheomai, which Paul used earlier in this letter. As you know, we exhorted parakaleo and encouraged paramutheomai and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul uses two verbs there with para as the um, prefix, which means to come alongside. These words have very similar meanings. John MacArthur in a sermon about this passage said, exhortation says, this is the way to walk. And encouragement says, I know it's tough, but keep on going. The weak. The Greek translated weak is asesines, which means strengthless. The word translated uh, uh, uphold, a techno, literally means to hold against. The person needs help. They can't stand on their own, so you have to stand there in front of them to hold them up, which made me think of the words from um, Bill Withers' 1972 hit song, Lean on Me. Do you want to thank God? Be patient, slow to anger in your dealings with all men. Lovingly confronting the unruly, lovingly exhorting the faint-hearted, lovingly upholding the weak. The fourth thing that Paul writes is see that no one renders evil to e- for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. I cur- called this paternal-like because these are the, because of the words of Jesus. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, 
and you will be called the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Luke 6. Kindness is one of my favorite words. We had a song here this morning that talked about your, your love is kind. I just, I just love the word kind. Greek word translated kind, krestos, means useful. In other words, to be kind like God is kind means to provide people what they need, whether they deserve it, remember Jesus talked about the evil, or whether they appreciate it, Jesus talked about the unthankful. Glenn Campbell had a song back in 1969 that included these lyrics. If you see your brother standing by the road with a heavy load from the seeds he's sowed, and if you see a sister falling by the way, just stop and say you're going the wrong way. You've got this Try a little kindness, you show a little kindness. You got to shine your light for everyone to see. And if you try a little kindness, then you'll overlook the blindness of the narrow-minded people on their narrow-minded streets. I'm sure there are many people who think I'm narrow-minded because I believe Jesus is the only way to God. I believe unborn babies are created in the image of God and that abortion is murder. I believe marriage is between a one-woman man and a one-man woman for life. I believe God created men and women and that men cannot become women and women cannot become men. Yes, I am narrow-minded about truth. And I believe that those who accept other ways to God or abortion, or gay marriage, or gender transitioning as valid and good are actually the narrow-minded ones because they have rejected God's truth and have accepted lies. Lies are empty, and therefore those who accept them are narrow-minded. However, though, that does not excuse me from showing them kindness, even as God showed and continues to show me kindness when I believe lies. Paul writes, do you despise the riches of his kindness, his Christotes, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the kindness, the Christos of God leads you to repentance, Romans 2? God's kindness leads us to repentance, to turn from lies to truth. And we, in turn, are called to be kind to others so that God can use our kindness to grant them repentance, to help them turn from lies to truth. I was reading an article on the Answers to Genesis website called Narrow-Minded Like Jesus. There's a way to be narrow-minded about truth that is kind, remember, useful, and there's a way, there are many ways of not being useful. Many times my narrow-mindedness about truth is not useful at all to other people. The author suggests that we ask ourselves some questions like these. Do I want to elevate myself by proving myself right? Or do I desire to bring God glory by upholding his word? Or am I focused on proving my opponent wrong or seeing him drawn to the Lord and his truth? Those who are narrow-minded about truth can help those who are narrow-minded against the truth by overlooking their blindness. And according to 2 Timothy, Timothy 2, remembering that Satan has them um, bound. He has them bl he's blinded them. 
by overlooking their blindness and showing them kindness. Do you want to thank God? Be paternal-like, treating your enemies the same way God treated you when you were his enemy, showing you love, kindness, and mercy that you did not deserve and that I did not deserve. The fifth thing that Paul says, rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. For literation's sake, I have be peppy. I can guarantee you that Charles, this, this, this quote I'm going to read from Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this, on this verse, he did not use the word peppy. <laughs> His sermon was from 1886 was called Rejoice Evermore, and this is part of it. It connects the rejoicing with the being patient. You have to warn the unruly and their rebellious tempers. Perhaps it will irritate you. Or if impatience you possess your soul, yet you will grow sad at having to so, at so melancholy a duty as to perform. But be not too much troubled, even by the grief of injured love. Warn the unruly, but rejoice evermore. Do not pause in the blessed service of rejoicing when you are called upon to comfort the feeble-minded. There's a danger that the feeble-minded may rob you of your comfort, but let it not be so. In attempting to lift them out of the waters, you may perhaps be almost drowned yourself. Your deliverance will be lie in the sweet word, rejoice evermore. You will lose your power both to warn the unruly and comfort the feeble-minded if you lose your joy. The joy of the Lord will be your strength in all these matters. Therefore, rejoice evermore. Close at hand will lie those who are weak and needing supporting. And you may half be saying to yourself, we wish that all of God's people were strong and we could reunitedly spend all of our strength against the foe instead of having to use it at home for supporting our weak soldiers. But do not be dejected on this account. While you're supporting the weak, still rejoice evermore. Your rejoicing will be a great support to the faint. Your ceasing to rejoice will be a terrible confirmation of their sorrow. Lend the feeble a hand, but do not stop your own singing. Does not a mother carry her baby and sing at the same time? As you turn about, you will find all men gathering to hinder you, to grieve you, to slander you, to make use of you for their base purposes. But be not grieved. Put up with with the poor fellows and creatures, and I love this, since the Lord puts up with you. Do not leave off rejoicing. The only way to rejoice always, including those while you're warning the unruly and comforting the faint-hearted and upholding the weak and being patient with all men and pursuing what's good for those who do you evil, is to rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4.4, David writes in Psalm 32, many sorrows shall come upon the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you who are upright of heart. Do you want to thank God? Be peppy. Not allowing circumstances or actions of others to rob you of the joy that you have in Yahweh as a result of his salvation. Rejoice always in him. The sixth thing Paul writes is pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 The word translated without ceasing, adaleptos, means without intermission. When I was young, a long movie like The Sound of Music had a built-in 15-minute intermission near the middle of the film. 
It allowed customers to use the restrooms where we filled drinks and snacks. Today's films are adelaptos. If you get up, you miss part of the movie. There's no intermission. Paul uses this. He doesn't just tell them to do it, but he actually does it. Paul says in Romans 1, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, adelaptos, I make mention you always in my prayers. It sounds impossible. I mean, just because of, just because of the sleep, it need, the need to sleep a third of the day, there are very few things that humans can do always and without ceasing. One of them, of course, is breathing. I like what, Dr., what David Jeremiah writes. There's something that you and I do without stopping that can help you understand what it means to pray without ceasing. And that is the physical act of breathing. Think about these dimensions of prayer as spiritual breathing. It has a lot more than the ones I'm going to read, if you want to go look at it. The involuntary dimension. Yes, you can hold your breath temporarily, but if you want to live, you need to breathe without stopping. Breathing is an involuntary physiological response to physical need for oxygen. And while prayer is, while prayer is an ongoing response to all needs that arise in life, Prayer should be, the autom- should be automatic for the child of God. Our first response to joys, our first response to sorrows, our first response to needs. The exchange dimension. When we breathe physically, we exchange. We exhale and inhale. And in the same way, a prayerful life is a life of exchange with God. We talk to God and we listen to God. That exchange should be going on all the time as we go through the day. Jesus said... To the Father, I know that you always hear me, John 11. That was because Jesus was always exchanging thoughts with the Father. Think of prayer without ceasing like breathing without ceasing. You might change the focus, the pace, the purpose, but never stop. I really think spiritual breathing captures Paul's idea of praying without ceasing. I love the idea of inhaling as listening to God's listening to God and exhaling is talking to God. The psalmist talks about both meditating on God's word day and night in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 88, crying out to Yahweh day and night. Instead of being a burdensome command, it's a beautiful expression of a relationship with God. Do you want to thank God? Be prayerful by listening to him through meditating on scripture and talking to him through all types of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, intercession for others, supplication for yourselves, depending on the need of each moment. The last thing Paul says, in everything, give thanks. Verse 18. The Greek word translated give thanks is eucharisto. Based on its roots, I think the the good definition would be to freely acknowledge God's goodness. I call this be pleased in the sense that we say with David, O Yahweh, you are my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. Psalm 16. Here, the Apostle Paul uses... When he says, in everything give thanks, he's using the Greek uh, preposition en, which can be used 
with the locative or instrumental cases. If it, if it refers to a location, it suggests in the midst of a situation or a problem, you're giving thanks, not necessarily for it, the problem. If it's, if it's talking about an instrument, it could suggest the problem is the means to giving thanks. However, in Ephesians 5.20, the Apostle Paul uses a different preposition, giving thanks always for, the Greek hip, uh, preposition is hooper there, all things to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The preposition there means for, for the sake of, on behalf. So here Paul is clearly stating that we should always be thankful for everything. In fact, it's a characteristic of a person who's filled with the Spirit, verse 18, two verses ahead of that. Amid problems, we are always to be thankful both in and for the problem. Neither is natural. Both are only possible when we realize that everything in our lives is ordained by a loving and good father. Three years ago, Nicole recommended that I read Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. And I would recommend it to everyone. Corey and her older sister, Betsy, had been imprisoned for hiding Jews from the Nazis. And they had the following conversation as they entered Ravensbrück concentration camp where Corey would get out and Betsy would eventually die. Corey, reading from, from our passage, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's the answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every th single thing about the new barracks. Such as? Such as being assigned here together. Oh yes, thank you, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. She looks down at her Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there had been no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women who are going to enter into this room who are going to hear about you through this Bible. Yes, and, and, and thank you for the very crowding here since we'll be, we're packed so close, so many more will hear. <sighs> all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. And, and thank you for the fleas and for, Betsy, hold on. No way. I'm thanking God for fleas. Give thanks in all circumstances, Corey. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of the place where God has put us. And then she concludes, Corey concludes. And so we stood between the piers of the bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure that Betsy was wrong. <laughs> However, Betsy was not wrong. Corey writes later about returning from a work detail one day. Betsy was waiting for me. Betsy was a poor housewife, so she didn't, she worked back at the, in the, and she was, I guess she was working on socks. And Betsy was waiting for me as always, so they could not, they would wait through the, we'll go, so that we could go through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extremely pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. Well, I found out. That afternoon, she said, that there had been some confusion about knitting, in the knitting group about the sock sizes, 
and they had asked the supervisor to come in and settle it. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could keep the triumph from her voice because of the fleas. That's what she said. The place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to that hour in that place. And I remember Betsy bowed her head. And I remember her, thank God, for the creatures that I could see no use for. Do you want to thank God? Be pleased by acknowledging God's goodness both in and for all circumstances, realizing that they are all the, the, they are the allotment of a loving Heavenly Father. The phrase, seven ways to Sunday, along with its variants, basically means in every way imaginable. As we've seen this morning, saying thanks can take many forms. Being perceptive and appreciative of a hardworking Bible teacher whom he has placed over us. Being patient and peaceable and paternal-like with difficult people he's placed in our lives. Being pleased with all the circumstances he's ordained for us and being prayerful, regularly inhaling his word and exhaling our cries to him for, both for others and for ourselves. These seven ways certainly are not every way possible but they are a good way to start telling God thanks for all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there would be, I mean, there would be more than 10,000 ways to say thanks. Because everything we have, we have from you, everything, everything. Yet I know even over the last couple of weeks when we're moving, and there's been so much complaining on my part. We just heard, we watched that, we watched that uh, film about a man who was happy to get an apartment, but he didn't have any furniture. We've got the problem of having way too much. And I'm complaining. I'm pathetic, Lord. If I, if I had to, um, could only preach this sermon if I was living up to this, there would have been an empty podium here. You're worthy of so much thanks, Lord. Lord, help us to show our world how great you are through our, our patience, through our prayer, through our being peaceful, You are being pleased with our, our circumstances. Lord, you're just so good. Lord, just help us to go out of this uh, building this t today as a royal priesthood, declaring to our world how great our God is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. No, no, please.